Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts. And uh, I want you to flip forward in the book of Acts all the way to chapter 27. Uh, As you know, uh, Brother Charles has been going through the book of Acts, but he's not here today. Um, Please don't tell him I'm doing this, slightly skipping ahead. Um, But by the time he gets to 27, it'll probably be new again anyway. So what is the context here for chapter 27? And that is, the unthinkable has happened. Uh, The great persecutor of the church, Saul, has been converted. He's been chosen by God to bear the name of the Lord before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And on three missionary journeys, this man who once was breathing out threats and murder against the church is now proclaiming, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is proclaiming the resurrection of Christ. This Pharisee of Pharisees is now proclaiming forgiveness of sins by faith apart from the law, which is incredible. He is reasoning in the synagogues. He's devoting himself to the Word of God. He's testifying that Jesus is the Christ. He's persuading men about the kingdom of God. He's declaring the whole purpose of God. He's preaching repentance. And as he is doing so, he's encountering profound tribulation in the form of recurrent plots by Jews to murder him. Uh, At one point, he's near death from stoning. And of course, he is uh, repeatedly imprisoned. The Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, he writes, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Well, after his third missionary journey, he returns to Jerusalem, and while he's in the temple, a mob rises against him and tries to kill him. But for the time being, he's rescued by being taken into Roman custody. Paul is then taken before the Jewish council, Uh, of which he was previously a member. This was the same council that had stoned Stephen. It was the same council that had crucified Jesus Christ. And Paul tells the council that he's on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Well, this leads to a riot among the Jews, and he's taken back then to the Roman governor's castle. Well, that same night, the Lord stands at Paul's side and says to him, As you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness in Rome also. So Paul knows that he's going to Rome. There's no question of it because God has told him that this is so. Well, to avoid a further plot by the Jews still to kill Paul, under cover of darkness, about 70 Roman horsemen were told, 200 soldiers and 200 Spearmen move Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which was the the Roman capital of Judea. And uh, Brother Charles will go into detail. Paul, of course, appears before Roman governors. He appears before King Agrippa before he is transported by ship from Caesarea, which is in modern Israel, to Rome. But this was not a simple Journey, And in the passage we're going to consider today, we see that it was very difficult. Three different ships were required. The winds were contrary. It was difficult. It was dangerous. 
And on at least one occasion, Paul sharply disagrees with the course of the captain. So with all this in in mind, let's start reading in Acts chapter 27, starting at verse 13. When a modern south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close inshore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Uroquilo, And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Calada, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island." And when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven along in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took some soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms, and a little further on they took another sounding and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern, and literally they were praying for it to become day. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat, and it fell away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. 
When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the, sh to drive the ship into it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas meet, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. But the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they, were all, that they all were brought safely to land. Well, I think it's fair to say that this is at least one of the most thrilling adventures recorded in Scripture for us. And I think this is so not just on the, the level of the raw excitement of the immediate events in this shipwreck, but because of the deeper spiritual implications for us today. We have this great storm, and Paul is caught in it, and there's nothing left for these men to do but to give way to it, to let themselves be driven along. And this passage says that they were violently storm-tossed. The darkness must have been terrifying. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. The fear must have been unthinkable. Grown men straining to see land, unable to eat for 14 days <clears throat> under the pretense of lowering some anchors. Sailors are trying to abandon the ship, but they're prevented from doing so by, by soldiers. They're throwing food overboard to lighten the load. This was a, a, a tremendous travesty being played out. <clears throat> These men are in a great storm, and, and Paul says, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. We have the great intellect, the Pharisee of Pharisees, the one whose eyes had been opened, the one who is miraculously converted, the one who had testified boldly to King Agrippa of repentance and resurrection from the dead. Now he is overcome with fear, without hope of being saved. Paul didn't want to go the direction he was going. He disagreed with the captain. But here he is, in the dark, in this storm. Has this ever happened to you? You're a Christian. <clears throat> the Spirit of God is in you. And now you find yourself on a course in life that you did not intend at all. Paul was the scholar, reasoning in the synagogues, proving from the scripture that Jesus was the Christ. And then he's arrested and he's taken into custody by the Romans, although he had done nothing wrong. And as I read this text, I cannot help but ask myself, is this storm is this storm in the life of Paul really necessary? Hasn't he gone through enough already? What is the point of this? Is God really in this storm at all? Have you ever asked this question? regarding your own trials. Is this really necessary? Why can't I have a different job? 
Why do I have these ongoing problems with my house? Why do I have one financial difficulty after another? Why do I have rebellious children? Why can't I have a child of my own? Why do I have this physical illness? Is this necessary? I mean, we all have bad days. We all have the days that we just have to press through by the grace of God. But what about the trial that is the steady drip, drip, drip? The trial that goes on for months and years and decades. Verse 20 here says that no small storm was assailing the boat and the men on board and Paul himself were assailed by it. Paul is lost in the darkness of the storm. He's unable to see the shore, but more importantly, he's unable to see hope. He had been tossed in the sea for many days, and now this trial is swallowing him up. All hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. You see, for the Christian, I think the frequent danger in the midst of the trial is not so much the catastrophic and sudden turning away from God as it is gradually abandoning hope. In Acts chapter 20, we have the words of Paul recorded where he said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord. But now we see here the, the very same Paul afraid and abandoning hope. And then, as we find so many places in Scripture, the kindness and the grace of God appear. As you look at verse 21, When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in the midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Paul, or do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. The very same Lord that had appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, the very same Lord that had stood by his side two years earlier and assured him that he would go to Rome, is the very same Lord who sends an angel to comfort him and to reassure him. Do not be afraid, Paul. God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. It's as if God is saying to Paul, I'm going to prove to you just how valuable to me you are by not only sparing your life in the midst of the storm, but I'm going to spare the life of everyone on board. Not a hair from, your, from the head of any of you will perish. So the first point I would make from this passage, and I think many could be made, but one is that hopelessness cannot survive the presence of God. All we need to weather the storm is the presence of God. Unless we're talking about some type of personal discipline by the Lord in our life and a need 
for repentance from sin, which is not the context here, I would say that you likely do not need any circumstance outside of yourself to change in the midst of the storm. You need the reality of the presence of God. So how does courage come in the midst of the storm? How does hope come from hopelessness? Well, the answer is divine revelation. We need something outside of ourselves. We need God to speak and say to us, do not be afraid. As Mason pointed out in Psalm 107 a couple weeks ago, this wonderful verse there, verse 16 of Psalm 107 says, He has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron asunder. God says to Paul, do not be afraid, and the very same God speaks today to us in his word. Have you heard God speak? What has he said to you? Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Luke 12. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Exclamation. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Isaiah 43. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. Psalm 46. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Psalm 23. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up in the last day. John 6. Fear not, I am with you, O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Even in the midst of the storm, Paul had a firm foundation. He couldn't see it at first, but the kindness of God reminded him of it. And just like Paul, we need to be refreshed daily, hourly, by the word of God. Paul didn't hear anything new from God, right? It was the same thing God had told him two years earlier, that he was going to Rome. And God tells him the same thing again. Paul, you're going to Rome. It was an old message, but it came with power to Paul. It came with a newness. Do not listen to yourself, do not listen to the voice of the enemy. Listen to God. God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is the shade at your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. 
In the midst of the storm-tossed darkness, the word of God comes to Paul with power, and he's renewed. He's full of faith. The fear is gone. He believes God, and he's filled with assurance that all the people on board will survive the storm. Verse 25, what does he say? Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. Can you say in your heart, I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told? Do we believe the God who says everything will turn out right in the end? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1. What else can we see in this passage? We see the powerful presence of God that dissolves hopelessness and brings an assurance, and we also see the very real power of encouragement. Do not underestimate your ability to encourage a brother or sister. Paul found great and apparently sudden help from God in the midst of this trial. What did he do? He immediately went about encouraging those on board the ship. Verse 22, Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you. Is this not the word of God to the church today? I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you. Let's look at, at verse 33 regarding this encouragement. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you've been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. One person encourages 275 people. Do not underestimate your ability to give real help to someone by encouraging them in the faith. So the first point is that hopelessness cannot survive the presence of God. The second is that fear cannot dwell in a thankful heart. What did Paul do in the midst of the storm? He took bread and he gave thanks to God. He encouraged others. He gave thanks to God, and he had something to eat. Fear cannot dwell in a thankful heart. Put your confidence in God. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Paul was an encourager. In Acts 14, 
the words of Paul recorded. It says that uh, he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. His word to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5, says, it says there, the exhortation, encourage the faint-hearted. Who do you know who's faint-hearted? Who do you know who is weary? Encourage them. I know a case of a brother here who was weary, and he was encouraged because a little girl in this body wrote him a letter. And that lifted him. Hopelessness cannot survive the presence of God. <clears throat> Fear cannot dwell in a thankful heart. And the third point <clears throat> is that the providence of God is not wasted. And this kind of circles back to an earlier question. Is this trial in the life of Paul really necessary? See, if it's not, if God is just messing with Paul, then we have all sorts of really serious theological problems. The outcome of Paul's arrest and his transport to Rome was tremendous in terms of furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ. This trial was not a waste. Paul arrives in Rome. This is the center of world power. He's there for at least two years. And he, during that time, lives in a hired house while being guarded slash protected by his, by his own Roman soldier. But he has retained freedom there to receive guests. So during this time, he encourages the brethren in Rome, and he writes letters to the Ephesians, to Philippians, to Colossians, to Philemon. So without question, God blesses this time of Paul's life in Rome. And God continues to bless that event and use the circumstances of Paul's life to bless the church all around the world today. But why did God have to bring Paul to Rome the way that he got him there? Why the stoning and the imprisonment and the plots of the Jews to kill him? Why this terrible storm from Caesarea to Malta? This is really getting into the heart of what I want to mention today, and that is the issue of necessary trials. When God assured Paul that he was going to make it safely through the storm, he also assured him of something else. Verse 25, Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. We are told that it was necessary that the ship actually wreck. We must run aground. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. We don't understand all these, these events, but what does Scripture as a whole testify to us again and again? 
Regarding the necessity of trials in the Christian life, James 1, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials are necessary for our sanctification. 1 Peter 1, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He talks about the necessity of the trial, revealing true faith, the proof of faith. Trials reveal who we really are, and that is scary. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Trials are the means by which we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Again, 1 Peter 4, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Trials reveal the faithfulness of God. Suffering in the Christian life is necessary. God uses our sufferings to perfect us, to refine us, to prove our faith. God has ordained suffering in our life in order to turn us into Jesus Christ, if you will, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What did Paul write while he was under house arrest in Rome to the Philippians? Do you remember? For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design, see the intention of God, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The same God who keeps you is the same God who tries you, who refines you, who brings you into the net. Read through Psalm 66. Struggle through that. We don't like to think of the God who preserves us as being the same one who brings us into the net. But it's there in the same psalm. 
Hopelessness cannot survive the presence of God. Fear cannot dwell in a thankful heart. And the providence of God is not wasted, even in regard to trials. God purposes trials in the Christian life for our good and for his glory. He has plans for our lives. He sets the course of our lives. God has determined our appointed times, the boundaries of our habitation. He has fixed times and epochs by his own authority. We need the presence of God. We need his spirit to testify with our spirits and to recall to our remembrance that the word of God is, in fact, true. For I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. God, bring us to the place where we can truly say, Not my will, but thine be done. Didn't Jesus Christ ask the same question in the Garden of Gethsemane? Is this really necessary? Not my will but thine be done. Thy way, not mine, O Lord, however dark it be. Lead me by thine own hand, choose out the path for me. Smooth let it be, or rough, it will be still the best. Winding or straight it leads right onward to thy rest. Be on the alert, I expect God has adventures planned for us that we do not expect. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed.